Father, we thank you for your word, both written and for the eternal word, Jesus Christ, whom we celebrate this Christmas season. May he dwell in our hearts. May we see the light that drives out all the darkness, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As you are, I want to thank uh, Nate Smith as well. If you weren't here last week in person or online, you may not have uh, heard me introduce Nate. Nate and his family have been with us for several months. Uh, but Nate, uh, in addition to working in public health, is also a priest in the Anglican Church. And along with Deacon Daryl, will serve uh, from time to time with us, assisting uh, in our services. We're really blessed uh, to have a wealth of pastoral leadership here. And so uh, make sure you say hello to Nate as well um, before you leave today. Well, Happy New Year to you all. It's great to see you. It's been a year. Uh, since we saw you last, um, so they say. Um, I've been thinking about New Year's, you know, because we're a few days into it, but really tomorrow begins the new year in some ways. Those of us who've had the few weeks off maybe are heading back to work tomorrow. Schools start back up in some format one way or another. Uh, and so tomorrow, if you have made a New Year's resolution, tomorrow is likely when it will kick in. You've given yourself the weekend and tomorrow is the day. And uh, can we all agree January is just unquestionably the most selfish month of the year? <laughs> uh, because every New Year's resolution, it seems to me, is somehow profoundly personal and navel-gazing. It's like the Christmas tree has made it to the curb, you've cooked all the meals, you've seen all the people you have to see, and now finally it's like, all right, Project Me begins. And so businesses capitalize on this. So they tell us for the last week or two and for the next month, we will be told now is the time to join the gym, to start that diet, to read the Bible in a year, to identify every bad habit you have in your life and replace it with every good habit. This finally is the month or the year that that will happen. Whoever you've been up until this point, uh, it won't be anymore. You know, this is your year. Uh, and we've all kind of lived into this, especially with 2020. How many things have you seen posted that is some version of good riddance 2020, as though 2021 will be uh, a year free of all strife and all personal failure and brokenness? Um, I'm, I guess I'm here to give a wake-up call of sorts <laughs> uh, and to say I'm afraid that's not quite the case. And really not just me, but the church helps us with this. The church in its wisdom for 1,700 years has broken into the New Year's resolution malaise and has given us the gift of epiphany. Um, and so this week on Wednesday, January the 6th, is the Feast of the Epiphany, one of the major feasts in the life of the church. Uh, and so even though we're still in the Christmas season, since we will not be together on Wednesday, I'm going to give a bit of a hybrid talk and uh, speak a bit to the epiphany. Because likely, even if you grew up in a liturgical tradition, Epiphanies may be uh, new to you or uh, something that you knew, kind of knew was there but haven't spent much time really reflecting on or living with as certainly a, kind of a core value of your Christian faith. And so let's talk uh, for a few minutes about Epiphany and then we'll tie it to some of our, our readings today. If you open the Book of Common Prayer and you look up Epiphany, it gives it this subtitle. It's called The Manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. That's the full name of this feast, The Manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles, and in that name, we're told something significant, really about Christ, that Christ is, and the mission of God through Christ is profoundly outward focused, because to a Jewish community, 
the manifestation of light to the Gentiles is talking about those who are on the fringes, those who are outsiders, those who are marginalized. And it tells us straight away, even in that title, that something about the Christian faith is meant to be universally true for us as well, that this is meant to push us outwards. And so where everything this month is telling you to look in and fix yourself, the church in her wisdom pushes and encourages all of us upward and outward to say the faith is fundamentally outward and not just for your own well-being. This is not some kind of self-help cure, but it's meant to be good news for the world, light to the Gentiles. And I think it's really easy to overlook that, to overlook this fact, but I think it actually helps us understand Christmas. Remember, we're still in Christmas. Um, If you still have Christmas lights up, if you still have your tree up and it's not on the curb, well done. Um, Try and make it to Wednesday if you can. You will be a proper liturgical Christian uh, if you do, Uh, because we're still in that season, and yet Epiphany helps us understand Christmas. It helps us understand the significance of the birth of Christ, because it really forces us to wrestle with this question, what does it mean? Why is it good news, not just for me or for you, but for the world, that Christ is born? So uh, if you know me at all, this won't be a surprise, but just forgive me. We're going to nerd out a little bit on history um, because the history of this feast is actually quite helpful to help us understand why it's so significant or how it answers some of these questions about how Christ is the light of the world. Uh, Like I mentioned, the epiphany really began around the third century. Initially, it, it was birthed in the eastern part of the Christian world, and they focused on the baptism of Jesus, the way in which the baptism of Jesus helps us see the mission of Jesus, the mission of God. Over the years in the western church, they focused more on the magi, and the giving of the gifts, the three gifts that the wise men brought. Presumably three wise men, that's kind of where we get the number three because of three gifts. In all likelihood, it was a whole band of philosophers and kind of academic cultural elites from Persia who came. And um, we kind of say three kings because of the three gifts. And I don't know if this is true for you. I've never thought twice about the gifts other than the fact that you probably should bring something to a king. (laughs) If you're going to be in the presence of the king, it would be nice to bring a gift. And yet there's actually beautiful reflections throughout the history of the church on why the gifts are what they are. The church in her wisdom has said since the earliest days that each gift is meant to remind us of the nature of God. Each gift tells us something about who God is. So gold is given for a king. Incense is burned for a God in, in prayer and in devotion, veneration for God. And then myrrh, um, you may not know this, myrrh traditionally was a burial spice. And so even in the birth of the king, this gift signifies what kind of king he will be that he's a king who will be buried, a king through whom life will come through death. And so each one of those tells us something, even in the birth of Christ, about the nature of this king, which is why, if you've ever made it to the final verse of We Three Kings, which, well done, if you ever have, because there are a lot of them. If you ever actually make it to the final verse, here's what you hear. Glorious now, behold him arise, king and God and sacrifice, each one speaking of those gifts. And then the response, heaven sings alleluia, alleluia, the earth replies. And so the first half of that verse tells us what kind of king this is through those three gifts. But then the second half is just as beautiful. It reminds us how we're meant to respond. 
how do you and I respond? Heaven sings, Alleluia. God the Father is saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It is the manifestation of the very life of God to the world. And yet, Alleluia, the earth replies. You and I are meant to respond to that. And the wise men show us how to respond because they bring these gifts and they kneel and they worship. And so it's this picture of the world at worship before the king. The venerable Bede, who will always have the greatest name of all the saints. The venerable Bede, uh, he said that the three gifts were meant to reflect the three parts of the known world at that time, Asia, Europe, and Africa. And so for him, when he reflects on this story, it's his way of saying it's this picture of the whole world kneeling in worship before the king. So there's a lot there. If you just kind of glance over the gifts, you kind of move right along with the story and you don't think much of it. But there's something profound here for us to sit with and see this helps us enter into the depth and the beauty and the richness of this epiphany story as we remember the gift that was brought to the king. And so what this does again and again is it draws us up and out. If it's the whole world kneeling in worship, it's not just you and me and Jesus. It's not just this kind of private, personal project we're taking on like you would if you bought a stationary bike and said, I'm gonna lose some weight this year. No, it's this grand cosmic picture, the light for the Gentiles, the light for the whole of the world to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're invited to. And so it, it's cosmic and universal, but it's also personal. I think Eugene Peterson once said, the Christian faith is always personal, but never individualistic. And that's the kind of line we have to walk uh, between those extremes. It's cosmic and for the whole world, and yet we also encounter it, per encounter it personally. We encounter the life and the light of Christ in our own lives. And so when you and I resolve, as it were, make a resolution this year to live your day, live your life day by day as a servant of Christ, to hear his word to you and respond in faith in some way, you are personally experiencing what is meant to be true for the entire world, what every single person throughout time and space is invited to encounter, the love and the life of God. And I think there's probably a, a part of this that I'm getting into territory that just kind of starts sounding like nice Christian words. Like this is starting to sound kind of just generic. Um, that's a nice thought. That's a nice sentiment. Participating in the life of God, as, as Peter says in his letter, uh, to become partakers of the divine nature. You're like, that sounds great. I'm trying to partake in the American economy <laughs> so I can pay my bills, so I can just get through this year. Like we've said, the last year has rolled into a new year. For most of us, we are just trying to hang on. We're hanging on by a thread in many ways, uh, either economically or emotionally. We're uh, battling depression, um, battling this kind of terrible year that seems to spill into the next and just kind of wondering, when does this end? How do I get from one place to another? And this kind of, uh, as a friend of mine used to say, scraping the Milky Way kind of, you know, abstract kind of um, disembodied vision of the life of God, maybe it's hard to sink your teeth into. It's hard to say, how do I actually live this out? What does this mean for me other than just kind of a nice theological reflection? I'll say this. One of the hardest parts about stories like this, really the Christian faith for us as Americans, um, is the way in which our faith is largely accustomed to um, pleasure, accustomed to a lack of tension, a lack of trial in any sort of significant way. So much so that when we face a really difficult year, it is easy for us to lose 
sight of something as grand as partaking of the life of God, and instead we just uh, kind of our faith unravels or disappears in our, in right before us, and we say, how do I just carry on? And yet what we have to see is on the whole, my life and your life, even however hard, the hardest year of your life has been, in many ways, it pales in comparison to the challenges and the struggles that Christians have faced throughout history. And that's not meant to minimize your struggles. The Lord sees it, weeps with you, longs for that to be healed. And yet you and I have a largely untested faith. And we have to come to terms with that. We have to come to grips with the fact that our faith is largely untested in a way that many Christians over the years through severe trial and persecution have had their faith hardened, made firm through fire. And one of the ways that, I, and I'm not judging a single one of you, the one of the ways I know this for my own life is that when I face even the slightest challenge, I see the way my, my life turns inward to come full circle, the way in which I become consumed with my own security, my own well-being, my own provision, the provision of those I love, and it becomes so inverted. And I think in some ways that's because at the slightest challenge, we don't know how to stay outward focused even when we're struggling. And that's one of the calls of epiphany, to say, how do you live your life for the sake of others? How do you live your life oriented to the world outside of you, even if you are broken and struggling inside? It's a very, very hard thing to do. And yet that is the call before us as followers of Christ. I think our readings today help us along that way. I think John the Baptist helps us. We uh, talked about John the Baptist a lot in Advent, kind of the central figure in Advent. He sh shows up again today in our reading from John. He pops up, uh, and we hear these words. There was a man sent from John, uh, from God, not sent from John, uh, <laughs> whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. John the Baptist was an honorable, faithful, incredible man, and yet he was a sinful man. He was a broken, flawed human being. And yet what you see, the beautiful mystery here is that God uses broken people. And so the strength of his witness is not his personal power. The strength of his uh, story, the way in which we remember him, is not the way in which he necessarily lived his own life, but the way in which he pointed to Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Anytime you see John in art, he's pointing with his finger to Jesus. And that's what you and I are invited to do. Even as we are weak and filled with doubt and fear and struggles, we are still able to point others to Jesus. John knew that he was not the light, yet he knew he was called to testify to the light. And I do wonder, though I'm not saying any one of us should be John the Baptist, do we believe in some way we have a similar call upon our lives? That it is actually core to the life of every Christian to testify to the light, to even in your doubts and even in your fears, to live in such a way that you point others to Jesus. Because we can kind of have this professionalized approach where we think that's really just the work of people who have pastor associated with their name, or evangelist, or missionary. I had a friend at a church we used to attend. Literally, he was hired full-time at the church, and his title was the evangelist, like the evangelist. And I remember thinking, oh, thank God, I'm off the hook, <laughs> uh, because we had a full-time evangelist. And that wasn't the point. What he was actually meant to do was to model in such a way the kind of life we all are meant to live, which is not navel-gazing, inward-focused, but actually lived for the sake of others. You and I are not off the hook. 
Again, it doesn't mean we're meant to be perfect. If so, we should all go home because this is a waste of time. But it means in our brokenness, in our weakness, we are still able, like John, to point to the light. And this is something every single one of us is meant to do. So as we wrap up, how, how do we do this? How does this actually become true of our lives in some way? I talked about this a lot the last, last year, really. I would encourage you to cultivate an intentional spiritual attentiveness, to learn to be attentive to your life with God, to look for signs of the work of Christ in your life, and especially in ways that are maybe often neglected or overlooked. It is easy for us to see signs of brokenness in our world. None of us needs help to see things that are broken or full of sin or death or evil. Open your phone. Open the news app. Look for about five minutes. You'll see all the signs you need. What's much harder is to live in a way that you are actively expecting to see signs of hope, actively expecting to see the life of God breaking into the world and that you look for it. And you, you and I can't do that alone. We actually need to have our eyes open and our hearts open. It is a, a work of the spirit that lets us see the world that way, to see the world through the eyes of the kingdom of God. There's a uh, ancient Greek uh, philosopher, I thought of this quote, Plotinus, he was not a Christian. I, I had a professor who called him pre-Christian because <laughs> he really liked him. But uh, I thought of this quote, Plotinus said this, he said, the eye that is not made solar cannot see the sun, which kind of sounds like a fortune cookie or something you put on your email signature um, to like make it sound like you're well read. <laughs> but it's actually really smart. There's something to this. He says, the eye that is not made solar cannot see the sun. Chew on that this week. I think there's a profound Christian insight in there. The, the, we could say maybe the heart that is not enlightened by the Spirit of God cannot see the kingdom of God at work in our midst. There's a fundamental work where we actually have to be renewed and made new and filled with the life of God so we can see the light of Christ that drives out the darkness. And so that's the fundamental work, to foster that attentiveness, but then also to live it out, where we not only look for it, but as we're enlightened, we begin to live for the sake of others, that we begin to serve those around us. I had a friend of mine, I'll stop here, a friend of mine who years ago worked at a church, and one of the things they did was their kind of version of neighborhood groups or small groups, community groups, that sort of thing. Um, every time they got together, they would ask two questions. And when I first heard it, I thought, that's, that's kind of cute or simple. Um, but the more I've sat with it over the years, I thought, I think, they, I think they were onto something. And so every time they got together, they would just ask two questions. They would say, um, what has God done for you this week? And what have you done for God? What has God done for you this week and what have you done for God? And they would, that was like their whole program. That was the whole agenda. They would get together and then just answer those questions. And there's something beautiful about that because it, it fosters that sense of expectancy. You know that question's gonna be asked of you whenever you gather. And so you look for God at work in your life that week. What has God done in your life, in the life of those you love? But then also, how have you responded? What have you done for God this week? And so maybe sit with those questions this week. Let's together maybe begin to ask those questions with the people you do life with. Uh, and may God bless us as we do. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. As you're able, would you stand? And together we will affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.